Coming to you from Berlin's mystical Maschen studio, this is Kabbalah Mama. I'm Jody Jaffe, and in this show, the person I'm proud to call my son, Ben Shepard, will share 10 lessons, one for each of the 10 spheres in the Tree of Life. The first episode is about the 10th and the last of the spheres, Malkuth. As you'll hear me say, Ben's first lesson was somewhat too fast for me to understand, but he slows down in the response. Thank you for listening. Kabbalah Mama, Episode 1, The Jewish Good News. Dear Mom, over the last week or so, I've taken a deep dive into the writings and podcast appearances of an American Eastern Orthodox Christian theologian named David Bentley Hart, initialed DBH. Most of his podcast appearances concern his book, That All Shall Be Saved, which is an extensive defense of Christian universalism. That is, the idea that God saves everyone, including in the case of David Bentley Hart, saves the devil himself. The question of universal salvation and the existence or non-existence of hell is one of my favorite areas of interest in Christianity, but that's not why I'm mentioning DBH. No, it's a different book of his that is relevant to our study of the Kabbalah. This book is called The Experience of God. It's an extremely complicated volume based on an analogy between the Sanskrit word Sachinananda, meaning being, consciousness, and bliss, and the Christian trinity. But the whole complex and quite beautiful philosophical construction is built on a relatively simple foundation. This may not sound simple at first, but here's the passage. Quote, God is not merely one in the way that a finite object might merely be singular or unique, but is oneness as such, the one act of being and unity by which any finite thing exists, and by which all things exist together. He is one in the sense that being itself is one. The infinite is one. The source of everything is one. Thus, a plurality of gods could not constitute an alternative to, or a contradiction of, the unity of God. They would still not belong to the same ontological frame of reference as he. Three key words here, oneness as such. Allow yourself for one minute to experience the very fact of existence itself. Look around the room or wherever you are and just observe the fact that reality exists. Whatever it is that you are seeing, experiencing and feeling your thoughts, the sensations, the moving objects around you, the unmoving objects around you, the sound of my voice. It's all happening. This is God, uppercase God, G-O-D, the God that exists on a different, quote, ontological frame of reference than other created beings. Created beings, that's what we are. That's what's around us. Everything around us is created. Anything we experience is a created being on one level, but then on another level, it's part of God. But then how do these two layers relate to each other? The underlying oneness layer and then the layer of all the created beings. 
The Christian story goes like this. It's about the deep layer, the absolute transcendent layer, this vertical layer entering into the imminent layer, the layer of created things around us. This is what the cross shows. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, these are each families of religions. Every member of the family resembles each other, but they're also different from one another. And so, for instance, universalist Christianity is very different than Jerry Falwell-type evangelical Christianity. So the kind of Judaism or Kabbalah that we're going to be investigating is something of a black sheep within the Jewish family. We're not even speaking Hebrew, for instance. It can be used also without any kind of belief in the reality of a mythological god that commands the obedience of a certain people with a certain god. There's also no idea of a chosen people here. This is completely open source, free for everyone Kabbalah Judaism. So Job and I have been watching a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which makes Job curious about how many Jewish comedians there seem to be. I have a theory for why this might be. So you may or may not have seen a diagram called the Tree of Life. This diagram has 10 spheres organized into three columns and with 22 lines connecting them. Maybe stop now and search Kabbalah Tree of Life to see what I'm talking about. Now, the first sphere, the one at the very top, is called Keter, or crown. It would be inaccurate, but useful to say that this is 100% God. The Zohar, which is the mysterious founding text of Kabbalah, describes Keter as, quote, the most hidden of all hidden things. According to Genesis, Methuselah lived for 969 years, longer than any other being in the Bible, including his father Enoch, who only lived for 365 years. Enoch, however, did not die. According to Genesis 5.21 to 5.24, Enoch, quote, walked with God. He was no more because God took him. To translate into the language of Kabbalah, Enoch rose up to the level of Keter. He entered into the absolute, the 100% God. But what does this have to do with curb your enthusiasm? Well, Keter is the most holy of all these 10 spheres, which are also called Sephiroth. Malkuth, Malkuth is the one at the bottom, the 10th sphere. Malkuth appears to be 0% God. Malkuth is the fallen material world, the world that might seem random even cruel. Now we can return to Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a sitcom about a very rich man who goes around humiliating himself and everyone around him. Both the hero of the show, Larry David, and the actor who plays the hero, Larry David, both got enormously rich thanks to another sitcom, Seinfeld. The standard cliche description about Seinfeld is this, Seinfeld is a show about nothing. But Seinfeld could also be said to be a show about Malkuth. So remember before in our story, we spoke about Judaism as a family and Christianity as another family. We could also talk about the two religions as different neighborhoods in a city. And with this in mind, imagine that Kabbalah is a kind of border zone where those who call themselves Jews work with the same categories, the same Kabbalistic categories, that those who call themselves Christians or even Platonists or pagans use or magicians. So the Christian Kabbalist Dion Fortune, for instance, will be one of our main sources in this 
class. In her book, The Mystical Kabbalah, Fortune suggests that Malkuth, this last sphere in the tree of life, was torn off from all the others by the fall of humans. Both Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm certainly seem to take place in a kind of fallen world, a world of constant interpersonal cruelty, absolutely lacking passion or conviction, a world filled with liars, hypocrites, and cheats. And in truth, our world can feel like this too. It can feel like a broken world, a world dominated by death, a world so painful and overwhelming that all we can do is sleep. But something else is going on here. Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm are not tragedies. They are sitcoms, situation comedies. That's why I was watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, because instead of wanting to live in a fallen world, I wanted to watch one and laugh at it. As part of my meditation, I visualize myself rising up from Malkuth, from the material world I see all around me. Remember, Malkuth is the tenth and last sphere on the Tree of Life. The ninth sphere, the one that I go up to, is called Yesod. So each of the spheres and paths on the Tree of Life is connected to different elements, to different colors, to different planets, to different cards on the Tarot deck. There's even connections with the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching. Malkuth is associated with Earth. After all, it's material reality. Yesod, the ninth plane, that's associated with the moon. So I visualize it as a lunar surface. In the next episode, I'll talk more about Yesod. And then in every episode, we'll work our way up the tree of life. But for now, I want to hear your questions. What do you understand and not understand? What ideas and feelings come when you learn about the Kabbalah? Hi, Ben. Well, first off, I'm really excited to do this Kabbalah lesson with you, period. A, I've always wanted to learn about Kabbalah, even before Madonna got into it. Um, when I was younger, in my early days, in Boulder, in my teens, Kabbalah was also popular because of its, as you say, border zone between religions. And as a hippie, we um, didn't want the dogma of traditional religions, which is why so many of us, I think, pursued Buddhism and Hinduism and drugism. Um, no, that's a joke. Um, but anyway, um, so I've always been intrigued by Kabbalah. I don't read Hebrew, um, and I don't know why I didn't pursue it. So I took some notes as you were talking. But first thing, you'll remember as a horsewoman, I've had a lot of head injuries. So what that means is, for we continue, when we continue, you'll have to go slower so I can take it in and then circle back and repeat it because that's how I process information, perhaps about this pace. Um, okay, I really like the notion of the Kabbalah being the black sheep. Um, I don't know why, but it appeals to me. But I, I, I particularly like that there doesn't seem to be a belief in a central God that demands obedience, because that has always been repugnant to me, that any supreme being would demand obedience. It just seems so petty and so Malkuth-like. Um, speaking of which, I did look that up, and I find it intriguing that you talk about watching Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm as a way to observe Malkuth, period. I feel like we're kind of stuck right now in Malkuth 
on Earth, particularly in the United States. Um, and I can see how watching a sitcom about it would relieve some of the pressure because it's very depressing and troubling. And I do wonder if we're stuck there or we can elevate to a higher place. Um, beyond that, I'm looking forward to your lessons. Slow down, repeat, remember head injury mama. Um, and that's that, and I'm so excited to continue. So um, let's go. Love you, bye-bye. Mom, thanks for the response. And thanks especially for the suggestion that I slow down the pace of these recordings. Listening to some of the podcasts we have done already makes it clear that I tend to talk really fast like this all the time and I have to slow down because people won't understand unless the content comes out at a relatively slow and easy pace. So I will also make sure to repeat myself. I'll make sure to repeat myself and say what I said several times. And at the very end of this episode, I will also talk about horses and the Kabbalah. So that is an incentive for you to listen to all the way through this lesson. So let's start with talking about God, and then we will talk about how to go up the Kabbalah, how to travel between the different spheres. And then third, we will talk about the very deep mystical truth behind the Kabbalah, behind the Tree of Life. So to begin with God, the reason that I mentioned the theologian David Bentley Hart, who is, as I said, an Orthodox Christian, I mentioned him because DBH, which are my initials for him, because DBH frequently makes this distinction between gods with a lowercase g and God with an uppercase G. So lowercase g's are like Zeus or any god that has sort of limited powers. There's other gods dealing with them. Those are sort of lowercase gods. Uppercase god, on the other hand, is not a being or a creature. It's the fact of oneness or reality itself. It's the underlying substance of everything that exists. This god, this uppercase G god, can be experienced in the very fact when you look around and you see things, that is an experience of god in this sense, of this upper G, big G god. Now, I think many people don't have this distinction, so they worship a very vengeful lower G god that they believe is Christian or Jewish or some religion, but in essence, they are worshiping a lesser sort of God that demands obedience. So when we're thinking about God and talking about God here, it's this vertical axis of reality, the fact of existence itself. This is very hard to say or talk about, but if you just look around and you think, what a miracle it is that there is this existence. What a miracle it is that I'm conscious of this existence. What a miracle it is that I can feel love for and from this world. Those experiences are experiences of God. But this is very general. This can be anything. You can have this general experience of God and it can show up in the form of 
a love of an animal. It can show up in a religious ritual. It could show up in a relationship with someone, feeling you have about a work of art. This sense of connection to the everything is very widespread and can be had in so many different kinds of ways. Kabbalah is one model for thinking about how the underlying God, the, the big G, relates to the world around. It's a picture of uh, reality at the highest or most general level. And in this picture, there's an idea of uh, energy that keeps breaking out of vessels and, and growing and smashing the vessels that it grows in because it has this huge amount of expanding power. So it begins at a small point and then it goes through all of the 10 spheres and sort of bursts. And then at the end, it creates this other world, the negative tree of life, which has a name that I can't really pronounce, but it's like Chipoleth. So all of the 10 spheres of the tree of life, they also have inverses, sort of evil versions, so to speak, that are fallen representatives of it. But the idea is that there's some sort of dynamic between the different parts of the tree of life. There's always movement in between them. So your question was, how do we move upwards? And for me, the answer is during meditation, I visualize myself going from the material world, from Malkuth, up into Yesod, which is the second sphere, which I see as a sort of moon-like environment with a tree on it, the tree of life, and beneath that, a cross, and around that cross, seven roses. And this is from an activity that Rudolf Steiner suggested. But you could put whatever you want in that yesod, in that second sphere. The point is that you go there by sort of closing off your eyes and your ears and just going inside. So we've talked about God, capital G God, as the underlying reality of existence. We've talked about how to move inside in meditation as a way to shift spheres. And now I will get to the third part of this lesson, which is the big mystical secret that was promised at the beginning. So this big mystical secret is this, that Kater, the top of the Kabbalah, the crown, the point of 100% God, is the same as Malkuth. That is the bottom, the point of 0% God. So the idea here is that all of these layers, all the different spheres, they're all happening at once. They're all part of reality. They're sort of layers of experience. We could perhaps be focused only on the Malkuth aspect. We could only exist in this material, almost animalistic way. Or potentially we could say, exists in a way characteristic of Tifereth, which is the Kabbalah of the heart. It's the sixth of the Sephiroth in the Tree of Life, Tifereth, and it's connected with love and with a kind of beauty, with the Buddha, with Jesus as well, to show you how other religions enter into the Kabbalah. So if we saw everything from the perspective of Tifereth, we would see everything uh, through the eyes of love. We would only experience love. So let me repeat the three lessons once again before I talk to you about horses. The first was a different way of thinking about God. 
This is thinking about God as the underlying fabric of reality itself. The second lesson is about how to move between the spheres. And the idea basically is that you have to close off your senses and look inside. And the third lesson was the mystical secret, namely that the different levels of the tree of life, the seemingly most holy at the top and the least holy at the bottom, they're all still completely holy. They're all part of this underlying uh, God experience. So now on to horses. I have found several interesting references to horses in the scripture. The first comes in book 39 of the book of Job. At this point, after suffering so much, Job has finally cried out and demanded to understand why God is treating him the way God is treating him. And then God responds. And this is from God's response. Uh, God says, Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His mighty snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. So that's from book 39 of the book of Job. Job wanted me to remind you that his name is not Job, it's Job. So the next reference to horses comes in the first book of the Song of Songs, specifically line number nine, where the speaker says, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in the Pharaoh's chariots. And then there's a negative reference to horses in Psalms 32, 9, where the psalmist says, Do not be like the horse or the mule, who have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. So that is the end of my lesson for today. Uh, if you have any further questions, send them and I will respond again. This is mom. Your intro was very funny. Um, I think the pace was great. I particularly liked the carrot that you dangled in front of me. Very horse and carrot. I would have listened to the end anyway, but yes, I enjoyed um, your references to horses in the Bible. Though I do have a question about that. When you cite the Old Testament, you talk about God speaking. Is that God with a lowercase g or God with an uppercase g, which will bring me into your discussion of God, which I found very interesting. First off, you mentioned the philosopher DBH, David Bartley Hart, and you described him as an orthodox Christian. You also said that he believed in the lowercase God and the uppercase God, the lowercase God 
being Zeus and other deities, perhaps maybe to a devout religious person, those could be called false idols. That's a question. Um, and he also believed in the uppercase God, the being, the all-knowing being, the oneness, the reality that everything exists, period. So, sorry, I'm used to dictating, so sometimes I dictate punctuation. Um, and talking and recording is a new way of me communicating. Usually I write, and I write to think, as my old editor, Foster Davis, once said. Anyway, I will try to train myself to um, be cogent in my thoughts and present them here. So my question is, if David DBH was an Orthodox Christian, I didn't know that Christians believe in the oneness and don't of a great reality like um, Buddhists do. But correct me if I'm wrong on that. I thought they believed in a a God that um, demands uh, obedience, as do other religions. I don't want to single out Christianity because you could look in the Old Testament and the Quran, and there's a lot of, if you don't obey me, I will smite you in the most horrible way. Anyway, back to the uppercase God um, and miracles. I feel that way a lot. And I had a transcendental moment, I think, once when I was eating cantaloupe and was awed by the taste of it. Its deliciousness, its sweetness, its all-encompassing orangeness that seemed to radiate inside my body and take over. And I thought, if God doesn't exist, who created this miracle of the cantaloupe? I also feel that way about horses. Um, and I do wonder why my connection to them is so strong. Uh, when I was pregnant with Sam, I think I told you this, that I went to a psychic, and she said that you and I were Indian brothers in a previous life, which I would assume meant we were riding ponies together across the plains. Okay, back to your lecture. Um, another question I have is you talked about the energy moving up the tree of life and breaking out at the top of the vessel and bursts through to create another tree of life, an evil tree of life, perhaps. Why would this pure godlike energy create something evil? Wouldn't the energy be so pure and so full of love that anything else it created would be? So I'm a little stuck on that. Perhaps you could explain that. Now, about the mystical secret, that the crown, the keter, is the same as the malkuth. And, and is that a little bit like Buddhism, which is you don't have to strive to reach enlightenment, you're already there, you just don't know it? Um, anyway, that's my question about that. And yes, I did take notes. So you talked about the sixth level, the tipperath, I think you called it which is where you see everything through the eyes of love. Okay, that's where I want to live. How do I get there? I can't think of a better place to live. That seems even better than the very top. Anyway, so if you could teach me how to live on the sixth level, and perhaps I will do a mosaic of my interpretation of the sixth level, and of course there'll be horses and my two children there, and of course John, the love of my life. Uh, I think those are my questions. I do have another question. 
I'd like to know where Hermetic Kabbalah fits in and Crowley's work. I was just reading about him and about his work with the Kabbalah and magic and how it gave forth to Wicca and his belief in astral projecting. Anyway, so if you could take a side trip down into Crowley and his interpretation of the Kabbalah and how that happened and where that's gone, I would appreciate it. This is very interesting. It's uh, stretching my brain, which of course I need. And it's providing a connection to you and Job, which of course I adore. So love you both and can't wait to hear the next lesson with the answer to my questions. And because I don't normally communicate and or think this way, once I finish, I'm sure I'll have more questions, which I'll send to you in an email. Perhaps you can um, you could uh, answer those as well. Bye-bye. Love you. Greetings from very, very chilly Virginia, where it's 18 degrees. Bye-bye. Mom, thank you for your response. I appreciate you stepping outside of the comfort zone of writing and trying to express yourself verbally. For me, it's actually a little easier to talk so long as I remember to keep myself at a reasonably slow pace. So let me organize my answers into three parts. The first will have to do with Crowley, the second with David Bentley Hart, and the general question of obedience or salvation from God, and also, of course, the problem of evil. And then finally, we will talk about how to live forever in the feeling of love and whether that is even possible. So why don't we start with Aleister Crowley? Crowley wrote a book called Liber 777, which is a table of correspondences between different um, sort of aspects of the Kabbalah, the Tarot, Egyptian gods, Hindu gods, Buddhist meditation, Scandinavian gods, and various other aspects. So, for instance, we can look at six, which is the number of Tifereth, which we'll talk about later, the central sphere, the sphere of the heart. And uh, in his table in Crowley's book, he lists the following plants as being related to this sixth Tifereth. So they are acacia, bay, laurel, vine, oak, gorse, ash, and aswata. And there's also magical weapons associated with this, which is the rosy cross or the layman. I don't know what the layman is. There's also precious stones, topaz and yellow diamond associated with it. There's perfume, which is the perfume olibananum. Again, I have no idea what that is. There are vegetable drugs, mineral drugs, magical powers associated with it. There's Taoist symbols. There's figures, like uh, geometrical figures. So this book is a sort of vast encyclopedia of correspondences between different mystical or magical systems. So in that sense, it's very useful. 
I have also tried to read several biographies of Crowley, maybe finishing one. I tried to read the very long one called Perdurabo, which was the name of Crowley's name in the magical order that he belonged to. And I think I'll probably finish it in the future because Crowley was a very fascinating figure. He was a very famous mountain climber, and I think he brought that mountain climbing ethos to many things. He also formed a religion, which is still active, called Thelema. A priest in Thelema named Juan Milo Duquette wrote a book called The Chicken Kabbalah of Rabbi Lamed Ben Clifford, which is probably the funniest introduction to the Kabbalah that I've read and a sort of useful book. Again, that's called The Chicken Kabbalah of Rabbi Lamed Ben Clifford. What else about Crowley? Um, well, he, of course, appears on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Band, and I have nothing else to say about him at the moment, but I'll keep thinking about it. So now on to David Bentley Hart and the question of obedience to God. So, as I mentioned earlier, David Bentley Hart believes in what is called universalism. This is the idea that God will save all created beings, including the devil, including demons, including Hitler and everyone. They will all be saved. They may have to be punished or purified or undergo some sort of hell-like process before they are saved, but the idea here is that God's love is so vast that it saves everyone. This position is a minority position within Christianity. Most Christians and most American Christians, I believe, especially sort of conservative Christians, believe that God, some will be saved and some will be subject to eternal torture in hell. Now, there's an obvious contradiction here between the idea of God as eternal love and God as an eternal torturer. And that contradiction, I think, perhaps has some reason to do with the collapse of Christianity in the modern period, because it's seemingly so ridiculous that it preaches at once this idea of a completely loving God but then also says that this completely loving God will torture people for eternity. So what David Bentley Hart does is say that no, God will in fact save everyone and that this is what Christians perhaps originally believed and is the only position you can take if you believe that God is all love. Which then brings us to the question of evil. If God is all loving... How could there be so much pain and suffering and loss, agony, torture, natural disasters, disease, death, all of this? How do we reconcile the terrible aspects of reality that we see around us with the beauty and love and infinite goodness of God? How do we put these two together? This is a very difficult question. There is, in fact, a whole branch of theology called theodicy that is all about solving this problem of evil. 
So let me give you one potential answer for this, which is that in the future, in the moment when all humans and all beings will be brought up into God, the entire past will be completely changed so that all the suffering that we experienced will be somehow reversed. Everyone who was hurt, who died, who was punished, all of this will be flipped backwards somehow. That is, it will be redeemed or saved. How this will happen is very difficult to understand or even think about, but we can make an analogy to our own life when we come to forgive ourselves. When we see something as painful in the past, something that was very difficult, we start to understand why it happened. Now imagine this happening on a completely universal scale, and maybe that could perhaps justify or explain what God's great plan is. Although, of course, as a mere small created being, I have no idea, and this could all be very wrong. Some measure of humility seems absolutely necessary when dealing with these metaphysical questions. Let me end now uh, by reflecting on your question, how do I always live inside of love or in the sixth of the spheres of the Kabbalah in Tiferet? So interestingly enough, this is where I go during my meditation every day. What I do first is a series of practices that allow me to leave the sort of material plane. I first uh, visualize these sort of balls of glowing light in my solar plexus, in my heart, and in my head. And then I do all this other stuff and then rise upwards into uh, Yesod, which is, if you remember, the ninth of the spheres of the Tree of Life. This is the zone of imagination. And then I do some more stuff there, which I won't get into. And then I picture myself rising up into my heart. And then for about the last 10 minutes of meditation, I just try to zone in on that love feeling. I sometimes start by thinking about job, envisioning job, feeling that, and then taking that feeling and then sort of visiting everyone I know absolutely everyone with this feeling of love, including and maybe especially important people who uh, may hate me or may I may hate them. But anyway, the idea is to sort of feel this very intense, deep, perhaps even absolute feeling of love every day for about 10 minutes. And I found that by doing that, it doesn't, of course, mean I live completely in love because there's still such a long way to go and I feel so many things are missing or there's so many difficulties, but I definitely sense more of that feeling of uh, love and care just by going there and meditating. I think there's other ways to do it besides meditation. I think, for instance, making the mosaic or art or even reading and thinking about it does basically the same thing, sort of whatever works for you. Well, with that, we will end this first episode of Kabbalah Mama. I want to thank you for helping me put it together and thank anyone who's listening. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will be discussing Yesod and perhaps also contemporary art, music, 
and perhaps as well, horses. 